Father, in Yeshua's powerful name, bless this program tonight to your honor and glory, Lord. Forgive me for anything I have done that has been a hindrance, Lord, to the going forth of this message. And Lord, I repent and ask that you would clear the way tonight that people may hear clearly in the name of Yeshua, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Folks, thank you so much for joining in last week. Brother Benjamin and uh, Brother Jamie were on here. and Woo! like a fire hose amen of of powerful um speaking and, and and um just blessing and that was all off the cuff i mean we literally like let's go on let's do it and we did it and there was we you know that was not um something that was practiced it was something that was just led by the holy spirit of the living god and folks when things are infused with the spirit it's a different ball game and I want to tell you tonight that you are facing, we are facing some of the hardest times we've ever known. And I know there are people out there that may be thinking, well, the economy's not that bad. But folks, people are suffering. Interest rates continue to climb. And people, I don't know why. And I, mean, I guess because there's an inherent belief and hope that Things will get better. And, and, and folks, that is an actual true belief because one day things will get better. And that, that is the hope we have. And that's the coming of, of Jesus. That's, that is the hope that keeps us moving forward. But it's seeing the depravity of a lost society that has fallen to such a level that pedophilia, um, pornography, things could be accepted today at with no no um no hindrance no no worry i mean i i was having to be schooled um not the other weekend um by some younger teens on understanding what this uh, only fans page is all about which i've seen in the news and everything but i guess you can just everybody can go and subscribe and pay for all or just you can you know do whatever fetish or whatever it is that people want and, and make a fortune apparently people are making lots of money at this and it's just another reason why that the days of lot prophecy is so overlooked and yet here it is and we are so close to the end of time and people just keep forgetting that the two signs the days of Noah and the days of Lot were the two things Yeshua said would happen right before his return. And we are living there and it is facing now, not just us, but our children and our grandchildren and everything we love and hold dear. And in one moment, this nation will turn and change forever. The dangerous thing is, is when we get so comfortable that we forget the hour that we are in and it sneaks up on us like a thief in the night. And I've spoken for years, folks. The second coming should never come as a thief in the night to those who believe because we are to be watching and looking and understanding the times and the seasons like the sons of Issachar, right? 
We are to know not only the seasons and the times, but we are to know what Israel ought to do. And the only way you can know what we ought to do is by getting in the very word of God. And you've seen what's happened to former President Trump, the unbelievable witch hunt, the returning of the masks mandates they're talking about now. And who knows what pandemic will happen next. But I'm here to share with you something tonight. This is, I hope tonight's message, if you've ever heard one from the Remnant Call, you will hear tonight's message. Because this message tonight is life-saving and life-changing. I'm going to pray one more time. Father, guide my words carefully in Yeshua's name. Amen. I was looking in the back of my Bible here that my mother-in-law gave me years ago when I first got married to my wife and she wrote a nice little thing in the front of it uh, may God's word forever uh, be sealed in your heart uh, may you always remember and and all these things and and blah 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 and I thought who gives somebody a Bible I don't want this Bible and I remember throwing it on the shelf only to one day this Bible now, 20 some years later, has been rebound a ton of times, fixed up. It's cut so short now, I have to pull it apart harder just to see where the. I've had to cut it down and trim it so many times to have it rebound that I have to really pull the pages apart to see where the beginning of the verses are on the, on the inside. And the reason I share this is I was looking in the back of the Bible. I remember I got all these scriptures written down here. And these scriptures were from the first time I met Brother Benjamin in person in 1999 at a prophecy club meeting down in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, I had read Brother Benjamin's book, but I never met him, but I knew a man who knew him. And so we went down to see him there and looking at all these scriptures that I have from 20 some years ago. It sounds just like Brother Benjamin today. He is the most consistent person you'll ever meet. Um, And it was just wonderful. The same things, fasting, praying, seeking the Lord, you know, the solemn assemblies, all these things. I'm all these scriptures, just wonderful stuff here. Pleading the blood of Jesus, just beautiful messages right here. And so tonight I want to share something brief with you. But I have not since 2016, I believe, was the last time on the Remnant Call I shared the story of my life coming out. I've shared bits and pieces of it through the years, but shared the conversion story of what took place in 1999 when I left home outside of a church, no knowledge of salvation, no understanding of what it meant to be saved, how God reached me. And delivered me from meth and all these drugs and adultery in one second of one day. He set me free. I want to share that with you tonight. You see, I was born, and at a young age, I remember, I think it was two years old after I was born, we moved to a a place in West Virginia where my dad was going to go to PA school uh, back in Philippi, West Virginia. And I remember we were growing up there, and everything was great and, and having fun, but about two years uh, after we had moved there, and it was about no, about three years, we moved up to this little tiny place called Brewston Mills, and it was a and it was a trailer park there. And we lived in this trailer park. My dad was starting his first job, and I remember that 
my grandma just shows up out of nowhere one night. And here's my grandma there, and she's everything. There's all this arguing, things that are going around. And I had no idea that my parents were about ready to get divorced, not because of my mother, but because of my father, which you've heard on this this program before. My father is my absolute best male friend in the flesh on this earth. And so I dearly love him. He's been converted, but there's going to be some things tonight that are going to tell what it was like when I was young. And I had no idea, but the kids in this trailer park knew that my parents were about to get divorced. And I can remember about five years old, I was just starting kindergarten, that they were kindergarten, first grade right there somewhere in that area. They were making fun of me and laughing at me because my parents were getting divorced and they were teasing me. And I remember what it was, how horrible it was. And all of a sudden in one night, there's all this yelling and everything going on. My mom grabs me and we went back to Philippi and we lived with her friend and my life was forever changed. You see, I'd been running around with my dad and he had taken me places and I had no idea that at the time he was having an affair on my mother and that whether he was having an affair, that little girl I was playing with is now, you know, my sister I've talked about, my stepsister, but she's like my, she's in my family. Um, I don't need blood to be my sister. And, and so we were playing together and I had no idea that my dad was having this affair. And so from a little kid, my family was filled full of dysfunction. And I remember my parents were divorced. It was horrible, but I would go with my dad on the weekend. And I remember how much fun we would have and dances and partying and all. I'm talking little kid. And I can remember drinking wine and that was okay. And how I can, I can still remember the first time I touched moonshine to my tongue as a little kid, how bad it burnt. And and it was just a free-for-all, and we were having fun, and me and my stepsister, man, we just loved it. It was great times, nonstop good times, and even though my family was divorced and it was a mess, I had so much fun partying there as a little kid with my dad, and that was life back then. And I can remember we had walked, my step-granddad, we get so drunk, me and my stepsister have to walk him home at night. And we just laughed, thought that was so funny because he couldn't walk straight. And nobody thought anything was normal because that's just life back here in West Virginia. These were mountain folk, hillbillies back there. And that's just the way it was. And I can remember that continuing on. And then all of a sudden, at about probably 7th oh, or 8th, maybe ninth, 7th, 8th grade, maybe right around there. Or no, excuse me, uh, 7 or 8 years old about that time, I believe. All of a sudden, my dad always knew when I was at their house that they'd always have beer in the bottom of the refrigerator. And everything would be there. You know, you just open up the bottom of the fridge, be beer. And all of a sudden, I went to dad's one weekend, and beer was gone. Dad's like, we're going to church. I'm like, what? Going to church? He's like, yeah, we're going to church. And just like that, in one night, all the partying quit. My dad got born again and turned his life to Christ. And my stepmother did also. And just like that, dad was no fun. Well, me and my stepsister didn't care. We were going to do what we wanted to do. And so we continued on and we were crazy and out of control and did everything possible wrong under the sun. And certainly 
my parents paid a heavy, my sister, my father and stepmom paid a heavy toll with my stepsister and I on the things and the havoc that we, we uh, caused all over the place. And so as I began to get older and older, I was like, I ain't going to see dad. I got better things to do with my friends. And next thing you know, here I am drinking, partying, having a good time. And it just got worse and worse until the time I got to about, it was the summer, about eighth grade. Um, going to ninth grade, I knew that I was a disaster. I knew that I was a mess. And my mom would go to church sometimes and she would take me with her and I'd go, you know, and, and I would raised going to church some with my grandparents and all that stuff. But, and I knew some of the Bible stories from being a kid, but I didn't know anything about God. I just knew what you could and couldn't do, you know, and, and uh, I had some very strict family in certain areas, religious, very strict. And, um, and so, you know, I went because mom made me go, but I knew that already in eighth grade that I was becoming a mess because by the time I was in fifth grade at 10 years old, I would already had relations with women uh, that was saved for marriage at 10 years old. Now, I think that's now common practice today. But when I was young, that was not heard of very often. And my mind was so perverted and so in, uh, consumed with sexual desires that I was really, really messed up from a young kid. Uh, and it and it continued in my life. I had seen a lot of uh, my mom's best friend was a, uh, a basketball, women's basketball coach. And I would go in there as a little kid to the locker rooms. And I, I don't think they they thought that that it would affect me, but they didn't understand. I knew what I was looking at. And it caused, I'm telling you folks, be careful what you let your children see. They recognize and I was young and I knew what I was looking at. And it really messed my head up. And I had a terrible outlook on women. And it just continued on in my life to where terrible addictions to sexual thing, desires and, and everything and, and partying. And, of course, I was big into sports and I loved playing sports. And, and about, about the end of 10th – or excuse me, about the time I went into 8th grade, I was like, man – Frank, you are such a disaster. You need some straightening out. Like I knew how bad I was. So I convinced my mom was remarried to my stepdad, who I loved to death. He really taught me how to be a man. And um, he, I convinced my parent and my, my mom and stepdad and my, and my father and stepmom that to let me go to Christian school for a year. So they sent me to a boarding school about you know, 45 minutes away or so. And um, I went up there. And I remember going there thinking, man, now everything's going to be okay. And I, it didn't take too long, though, before I got there to this school, as much as I had great ideas, that none of it worked out. And I'd found the guys in the Christian school that were doing the same things. You ever had a good idea before? Thought if I could just do X, Y, and Z, that'd fix everything? How many times has that ever actually worked out for anybody? Well, it didn't work out for me, and it was a disaster. And so it was there, and... I remember in ninth grade, we were sneaking out at nighttime, and we would go across this house across the street from this school boarding school we were at. We would sneak out and run through these underground tunnel thing and then back through people's backyards. And I knew these two guys from this. I'm in Virginia now. I knew two guys I had seen that from West Virginia. It was a long story how I knew them. Uh, but one of them, they were twin brothers, lived in a house across the street. And so I'd go over there and drink beer all the time. And it was there where I finally started smoking dope for my first time and smoking pot and uh i remember man it was it was wild and and i by the time i got to the end of that year i was so out of control i decided you know what i'm just going 
I'm, I'm going back to public school because these people are, and I don't want any part of this. So I went on back to public school, cost my family a bunch of money they didn't have because we were very poor. I mean, uh, we're, when I said trailer park, we, I lived in a trailer up until the time I, we moved here to Virginia. Uh, and then some year we lived for a while on another trailer on a farm. And then I finally, we moved into our first small little tiny home, but we didn't have much at all. And, and so it cost my parents a lot of money that they had to pay for because I couldn't meet uh, grades to make scholarship. And it was a disaster and as soon as i got back with all my buddies i mean my life just started to turn downhill fighting and drinking and out of control and i my and i I shared with you all a few years ago i buried my best friend growing up here just in 2021 it was really heartbreaking right up the road my wife went to the funeral she said she's never been so afraid as she was at that funeral with all my old friends there and i just looked at him and i was like thank god i'm not still in that lifestyle but they were mean and 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 we were all mean and and had bad tempers and and we didn't care about anybody except ourselves and we were out of control and this continued on and got worse and worse until and about the end of 10th grade starting to 11th grade I had to drop out I couldn't wrestle anymore 11th grade I couldn't play football anymore and all I did was party and and somehow by God's grace I graduated I don't know how um, but it was by I think they wanted me out of the school uh, because I was just so bad and out of control and so about the time I got to be a senior in high school, I mean, we're drinking, fighting all the time, coming late to school. I'm strung out on drugs, messed up, just out of control, thinking life is, you know, I'm just having more fun than I know what to do with. But it's coming time that, you know, I'm going to be having to actually face the real world and, uh, you know, live on my own and do all this stuff. And so I'm like, man, I better do something. So I had this brilliant idea. I said, you know what, Frank? you ought to go join the Marines. So I went and signed up for the Marines. My mom signed, went and joined the Marine Corps and took off. You know, I remember I had like this window from getting out of high school in in June, I believe it was. And I went in the Marine Corps in, in December of 1992. And I remember I partied myself to absolute death. I was like, man, I better live it up because I don't know. I'm going to get straight and my life's going to be right on track and I'm going to start my new life. So I better have all the fun I can have right now. And I mean, we partied so hard. uh, It was out of control. And I thank God we're alive because there are so many near death experiences I had uh, that I could share. And, and, And honestly, folks, there's so many. I'm not going to share with you, but about two or three percent of the things that went on, because the most of the stuff I don't ever want to repeat again. And it will go to my grave with me because it's too disgusting and out of control. And I am ashamed of the things that I've done and and the problems that I've caused and, and stuff. That's just it's I hope I don't want anybody to ever know. Um, So I I. I decided I'd go in the Marine Corps. So I remember I partied myself. I went to the Marines and I I remember I went into boot camp and I said, all right, Frank, you know, tighten up, let's do this thing. And I I remember going all out and I, I, so I was like, I'm going to be the best in ever. And I went in the Marines and I worked hard. I had the highest, I was the platoon high PFT. I had no idea I could, I played sports, but I never knew I could run distance. I found out I could run distance. Um, I was, um, you know, I, I was uh, meritoriously promoted ranks. I was a squad leaders. I was, I was the top of my platoon and one of the best in the company I was in there. And, 
and I just was going to go all out. And I remember my mom coming and seeing me, and I was in such razor-sharp shape, and I was in such good condition, and they were so proud of me, and I thought this was going to be great. And I got home, and I went back to my first 10-day leave before I went to Marine Combat Training, and I got home, and as soon as I got back, my friends out there, a few days partying and everything, what do you think I did? Started smoking dope again. What an idiot. So I went to Marine combat training, continued on, went to my first job out in California. I mean, my MOS school out in 29 Palms, and I was a comm guy and field units. And uh, I went there, and, and then I got shipped off to my first station in Okinawa. And I remember in Okinawa, man, I was like, man, they don't have any drugs over here. But we soon, you know, I've always realized that a good drug addict can get high anywhere he's at. And we realized quickly that there was opium in the cough syrup inside the uh, – in, in the um, – in the the Japanese drugstores, and we we could buy steroids. I'm I'm lifting, taking anadrol, drinking opium on the weekends, partying ourselves to death. I mean, just absolute wild men. We were out of control, all over the place, you know. And and I remember I got back from Okinawa after a year there, and I went to California. And I got to California. I'd just been there for a week or so and saw some buddies of mine who I knew from Okinawa. And they're like, hey, we're going to an anthrax concert down in San Diego. You want to come? I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. So I went down to this concert. I was like, cool, man, let's do it. And so I got there and people were smoking dope and everything. I was like, here, let me have some. Got back to work on um, that Monday morning after that concert weekend, picked up my platoon. And they said, guess what? Drug test. And sure enough, I popped positive. And so here I was, everything that I tried to work for, I was, even though I'd been skirting the system and doing all kinds of wrong, I hadn't been caught yet. And now all of a sudden I was caught. And that was about 1993, going maybe late 1993, um, probably there to going into 94 around the, yeah, about maybe early 94. And I remember I, um, at that time, they changed the policy in the Marine Corps. It was a zero tolerance. Uh, you popped on one drug test, you were automatically going to be discharged at a general under other than honorable condition. And I couldn't believe it that all of a sudden my family was going to find out that I was nothing but a dopehead. My grandfather had fought, had, was in World War II, had seen this unbelievable. My uncle was so decorated and, 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 and other family in Army and Coast Guard and, and uh, different branches. And I came from a real, true military background family. And I was so ashamed that they were going to see who I was. And, and I said, man, is there anything that anybody could ever do? to stay in the Marines if they've popped positive on a drug test with a zero tolerance. And everybody said, there's no way you can possibly do this. It's just impossible. I said, well, you know what? I'm going to at least go down swinging and fighting and doing everything I can to try to stay in. So I was over there shining the brass, scrubbing the toilets. Yes, that stuff actually happens. Every night I was having to do that while I was waiting for my administrative separations board where I had requested to plead my case. And I remember at, during that time, it was several months before I could go up. I went and got extra swim calls. I built things. I did stuff. I, I mean, I did all out, went as best I could till it got time for me to go on my administrative separations board. And during that time, I realized that I was in a real pinch. 
and I needed something. And I remember at that time, I started to feel the calling of God on my life. And so I started to talk to some other guys in the Marines I knew that were religious and then they didn't compromise their faith. And I remember talking to my dad, hey, dad, send me some books, you know, because my dad had been converted. And I started reading that and I began to pray a little bit and I, I began to seek God. And I remember as I got right to that, you know, that time of that, that ministry of separations board and I went in, I went in and my first sergeant went with me. A lieutenant went with me, another sergeant, staff sergeant, I believe, and maybe one other, all went with me and fought for me on my admin steps board, which was almost unheard of. And they went in and fought for me. And I remember we pled the case and the government had their witness against me. And he said all kinds of bad things about me that he didn't even know me. But, you know, honestly, they probably were most of them true anyways. And I remember that we got to the end and my lawyer said to me, he said, I've only seen one time ever that somebody got to stay in because their corporal had given the given a, a, a lower ranking like a PFC or a private um, the drugs and somehow he got to stay in. Anyways, he said, I don't think you're going to get to stay in, but I think we're going to get you a general discharge, which is better than general under other than honorable, but less than honorable. So at least I would be able to get a job and, you know, maintain a career after that without having that, you know, on my record. And so I said, you know what? I, Lord, I did everything possible. I tried all that stuff. And I remember I went in at that moment and I went back and there was three people on my administrative separations board. And it was a general, I mean, excuse me, not general. It was a major, a captain and a master gunnery sergeant, I believe, or a gunnery sergeant, one of the three. And I remember I went back in there and they looked at me and they said, it's a two to one vote for retention. You're going to stay in the Marine Corps. And I couldn't believe it. God had showed mercy and saved my face with my grandfather. Never had to know about the things I had done and the shame on my family. And I couldn't believe what I'd done. And I was so excited and I was going to keep myself straight and do everything right. And I was going to live, do better from that moment forward. And I remember I got back in the Marines and it wasn't too long after that. I was in the rodeo and all these things. I got right back into drugs. And now I found a new drug that I'd never experienced before called crystal methamphetamines. And now I was worse than I had ever been. It didn't take but a few months before I went into total depravity. And spun back out of the control, you know, about this, about the, the story of the cleaning out the house and casting out the devil. And he comes back and finds it empty and brings seven more. That was where I was at. And I was in total submission to the enemy of the most high and my life of drugs and alcohol and sexual addictions and everything like that. And I was raging out of control in California at that time. And I remember I couldn't slow down. I couldn't stop. And I was high all the time and did whatever I felt. I abused pills. I took, I, I, I abused pills every day because I had ADD. They had me on medication I was uh, abusing my medication. Uh, I, I was drinking alcohol. I was snorting crystal meth. Uh, I was smoking crystal meth. I was smoking dope. I was doing everything possible. And somehow, I, by God's grace, I never got another drug test again. I don't know how that happened. 
And I remember I got down to the end of my career and they told me in my admin SEPs board that I would get a, an honorable discharge, but I, I wouldn't be able to reenlist. Well, that wasn't true either. I actually ended up getting an RE1 Alpha, which is perfect reenlistment code. I could have uh, stayed in. I've got to end up getting a general or an honorable discharge and a, a RE1 Alpha reenlistment code. I had a, it basically reflected that I had a perfect, uh, you know, I could have uh, stayed in my whole entire life and made a career out of it. And about that time, probably about six months before I got out, I met this woman and is now my wife. And I remember I met her. I was with my first sergeant. My first sergeant was crazy, which honestly, he was just at my house not even a month ago. Praise God. And you know what? This is another killer story. We were talking about Jesus. And I used to go pick this guy up. He'd be so drunk uh, out the bar. I'd go, I'd take him his Mustang and I'd get on his Harley and ride his Harley back so that he'd at least have doors around him to get back home. Because I was back at his house with my girlfriend, which is my wife now, uh, with her messing around instead of being with him, which I normally was out drinking and getting drunk and, and just going crazy. And he was nuts. He was literally crazy. And um, so I, we were doing that and everything was going on. And finally, I got to the end of the this thing. I told my girlfriend, I said, look, you know, I, you, I'm, I'm, when I'm done, when I get out, I'm not going to stay in. I'm getting out. I said, are you going to come with me? I'm going back to Virginia. I ain't staying out here in California. All people are crazy out here. You know, I mean, not like I wasn't right. And so I'm going back to Virginia. I'm out of here. And she said, well, I don't see a ring on my finger. So we ended up getting married. And I remember my wife would tell me these stories about how she was abused and how her mom would play head games with her and her oldest brother was a drug addict. And I used to laugh sometimes and I'd say, you sound like an after school special, right? And until I met her mother and I realized, my goodness, she is crazy. And all my wife ever wanted in life was for somebody to love her. You see, at the age of 14, she had to go out and fend for herself. Her dad, my father-in-law, which lives with us now, he was always trying to work and, you know, and probably stay away from his wife at the time, you know, and, and she was just crazy. And my wife had to fend for herself and, and the abuse and everything. She was abused by her mother uh, until the day she finally uh, hit her mother back and her mom stopped hitting her. But the, the still the mental and verbal abuse continued. And so. My wife comes out here, and now she's from Huntington Beach, California, where they've got nice things, stores I couldn't pronounce in their malls, and, and, and all this stuff. And now, all of a sudden, she comes to rural Virginia, to redneck land, and meets all my crazy friends and wonders what kind of deliverance she's gotten herself into. Well, as soon as my wife got here, she didn't drink much, hardly. She didn't like drugs and all that stuff. So I would just leave her at home a lot of times. I'd go out and party with my friends, run around on her, chase after other women, do whatever I felt like, didn't care anything about her as long as I was happy. And this continued on for about two years until my wife couldn't hardly take it no more. And about the time she was starting to contemplate, I, she didn't want to be here anymore. All of a sudden, we got news one day hey you're pregnant so my wife's like i'm pregnant i'm like oh okay whatever you know that's fine with me we'll have a baby you know i didn't care whatever i mean i did but i wasn't worried about it as long as i keep getting high and so my wife she ends up you know getting pregnant and you know a few months goes by and i'm a disaster and she decides you know what i'm done 
I can't take him anymore. He's out of control. I ran around nonstop. I cheated on her all the time. I did everything you could have ever imagined. Um, I was violent, not with women. My mother raised me better than that, but I was violent with men and um, extremely violent. I never never laid a finger on my wife, although I did throw a microwave at her uh, before and a few things like that, which I'm sorry for. She laughs about it now, but it wasn't funny at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I did, never did put a hand on her, um, but I was, I was a violent messed up person and uh, you know there's some things in life you just can't take back you know like the the nights my mother would sit on my bed and cry and beg for me to change you know there's kind of things you just wish you could take back I wish I'd have never even thrown a mic who throws a microwave at their own wife I got sick. I was so angry. I was so deep in drugs and so strung out on crystal meth. I hated myself, but I couldn't stop what I was doing. So about the time my wife's just, you know, can't hardly take it anymore. She's ready to leave. She's about six to seven months pregnant. She gets a call. Now, you got to remember, she remember was abused by her mother, but she always wanted her mother to still love her, even though her mom was crazy. She wanted her to love her, but she started to kind of semi have a little bit of a relationship, nothing that was necessarily healthy, but moving away was healthy. And she gets word at seven months pregnant that your mother's dying. You need to jump on an airplane and you need to come here immediately. Your mom's going to die. So my wife gets on an airplane and she goes out and she's there and she witnesses her mother die a horrible death. It was horrible. I can't believe they even let the family in there to see this. And my wife was calling, trying to find me. To tell me what had happened. And I was out running around chasing other women. And I didn't even care. Till she finally tracked me down by my mother. To tell me that her mom had passed away. Those are the kind of things I wish I could take back in life. So my wife comes back home. She breaks out in this rash, super dangerous for my daughter. And, you know, she's carrying right now, pregnant, eight months right there by then almost. Terrible rash. They put her on immediate bed rest. And she's so stressed out. She doesn't know what to do. Her husband's a mess. Her mom just died. You know, she's going to have a baby. She hates where she lives. She hates the situation that she's in. She wants out and she doesn't, you know, hardly know what to do. And, but she's a strong woman. She says, that's fine. I'm just going to stick this through. She talked to her brother. As soon as she was done, pad this baby, she was out of here. And so I remember it went all the way up to time to give birth. And I remember we went to the hospital and I was so strung out on drugs that I would, even when she was, we were there in the hospital, I'd have to keep excusing myself and leave the room so I could go out and keep getting high so I could make it through. And I remember my daughter was born 
And I couldn't believe how amazing it was. And we went home and my wife was still on bed rest and we're having to take care of a baby. And, and I had no idea that she was ready to leave. She was just trying to get her, you know, through this mess and get her body back to, you know, a balanced state and she could get out and, and leave and go back to California. And my daughter was real colicky when she was young and we lived in the basement of these people's house, um, and, and uh, we, they, we rented the, ba- the downstairs of their home and, and I'd have to burn wood. We, we burned wood in the winter time and, and my daughter would cry. So I would, I would get up and take her out in the back room and, and I can remember holding her, you know, now this, ha- she was born at the end of January. This was through February. And now we're, you know, in February, I'm looking at her and I'm like, my goodness. I was like, Frank, your daughter's going to grow up. And know that her dad is nothing but a dopehead. And I hated myself for it. And I wanted so bad out of this life. But I was so trapped. All I knew about God was what you could and couldn't do. I had no idea who he was. My knowledge had no power to deliver me. And I was trapped and I was stuck. But, you know, my parents, even though they were a mess and my mom, you know, would make me go to church and my dad would make me go to church after he was converted. My grandparents, I had enough knowledge in my mind at that time that said, Frank, no matter how you're living, you better raise your child to know about Jesus. I knew that much. I knew I needed to do that. So I get my daughter up. I take her to church. I'd get high on the way there. I'd drive with my child high in the car. I was a mess. I'm telling you folks, thank God I'm alive. And and I remember this guy, Brother Jim. He's a good friend of mine. He's right now, he's, he's coming to the end of his life. He's in his upper 80s. And, um, and uh, Jim... I was talking to him one day and uh, he at church and he, and I'd known him for years cause I was friends with his daughters and everything. We were all good friends. And, and uh, he said, can you come help us load uh, some supplies for a, for a, a, you know, like it was like Dominican Republic or somewhere who had gotten hit by a hurricane. And I said, yeah, I'll come help you. So we went up there and we were coming back and he said, we started talking about God and everything. And I, and I said, look, Jim, I know one thing. A man can't live the way I'm living and expect to be justified. And he said, you know what? He said, you need to read this book. And he handed me this book called The Day of the Lord is at Hand by a man named Benjamin Baruch. And I looked at it. It was 300 and I don't know, 80 some page. I can't remember, 60, 80 pages Something like that. I thought, I'm never going to read all this. I have barely read a few books my entire life growing up. Why would I read all this? And so I remember he gave me this book and he told me about this man he had met on a mission trip who gave him a Bible study like he'd never had before. And I started reading some of this book. And before you knew it, I couldn't put this book down if I wanted to. And it was full of the Bible and so much scripture and words. And I was like, man, it was slow for me to read because I hadn't read tons of the Bible. I mean, I knew some of the stories from the kids, children's stories and some from church. But I mean, it's so much scripture. 
and I was reading through there and I couldn't put it down. And I remember I would, I was coming home. I would always come home late because I would always be looking for drugs and getting more drugs. And I, this, now I'm sitting up on the side of this place where I, not far from where I live on the side of this hill where it's overlooking, I'd be smoking dope and snorting whatever, you know, abusing pills, whatever I was doing, snorting meth. And, and I'd be reading this book at the same time and I couldn't put it down. And now I start talking to some of my friends. I'm like, man, I start talking about God. And they're looking at me like, what is wrong with this guy? And this kept going on for a few weeks period as I was reading through this book. And I remember we got into the month of March. So my daughter's born the end of January, the 27th, February. Now we're in the middle of March, probably around there somewhere. I don't remember the exact day. And I got up that morning and I left out of the house. And I was strung out on meth. I was running around to my wife. I was a chronic adulterer. My wife was leaving me. I didn't even know it. I hated who I was. I couldn't stand it. I, I just couldn't take it. And, 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 I, and I can't put this book down all at the same time. I've never had anything like this in my life going on so much at once. And so I remember that day I'm driving out and I'm coming back home in the work van. And as I begin to come back home, I'm coming up by this place where this Cooks Creek area and, and I'm coming back up through there. And as I'm coming back through, through there, all of a sudden out of nowhere, all of my sins begin to start weighing down on me. And I, all of a sudden what I used to be able to smoke or snort or uh, take a pill to take it away, all of a sudden it would not go away. I could not get rid of what was happening. And I'm driving back and I feel all this pressure coming down on me and I'm all messed up and I'm tore up on drugs. And all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, it was like God blew the fog right out of my mind. And all of a sudden I could see everything clearly for a second. And I remember as I'm coming up to where this church area is, it's not but about four miles from where I live right now. And and I, I come up to this church area, and as I'm coming up and the fog's blown out of my mind, I remember out of nowhere, I feel this. I don't know if I... I don't know if I heard it or, or what. I don't know what happened because I don't know anything about that time about understanding, hearing the voice of God. I was not raised in any type of church that taught that stuff at the time. And so I, I'm, I'm going down the road and all of a sudden I hear, Frank, you will die and you'll go to hell. And I'll tell you, I had an ego the size of Texas, folks. I did not like to show weakness. But I tell you, at that moment, I began to weep uncontrollably. And I got scared because I didn't want to go there. And I remember as I'm driving down the road, and I'm like, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to do that. And I remember it was at that time that Jesus offered me something different. And as I'm crying out loud, I remember I just screamed, Lord, I will give you my life. If you will take these drugs from me. 
And as I was driving past, I was going up by this farm. I know this down the road here. As I was going up through there, folks, I'm not kidding you. As I stand here today, the Lord came down in my vehicle. I didn't say I saw him, but something took place. And he came down. And I remember I reached down. I grabbed all my drugs and everything. And I rolled the window down and threw him out in that field. And when I did that, I'm telling you, something changed inside of me. Something happened inside of me. And I remember I ran home. I, I, I was probably not even a mile. I was like three quarters of a mile from where I lived at the time. And I drove home and I and I jumped out of my vehicle and I went running down around the backyard into the to our door what sliding door was to go in the, where we were living and I pulled the door open and I looked at my wife and I'm like I'm strung out on drugs I messed up like she didn't know right and I said I just met the Lord and He saved my life and I looked at my wife and I was like Are you gonna leave me? My wife's in shock. What's going on? And I'm just spitting all this stuff out. And I'm, I'm like, are you going? I didn't know she was already leaving. And I remember my wife just in like a deer in the headlights. She's like, I'm going to the bathroom. And she goes to the bathroom. And I, 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 we had a couch right there. And I sat down on this couch. And I remember I was just crying. And I was like, God, I can't believe this. Jesus just saved my life, and now my wife is going to leave me. And I sat there, and I just wept. I was in shock. I was in awe of what took place, and now I'm like, oh, my, Frank, your family's over. You're going to lose everything. Contrary to just what happened five minutes ago, I mean, it's what seemed like maybe 20, 30 minutes ago when I met the Lord. I'm thinking everything's gone now. And what seemed like an eternity, as I sat there, finally my wife comes back out of the bathroom. Now remember, I told you she was leaving. It was done. My wife looks at me. She says, it's finished. I'm not going anywhere. When she was in that bathroom, God laid it on her heart. Your husband is done. It's over. And that day, God saved my life. And he saved my family. And I wept. And I cried. And I remember I picked up the phone. And I called my dad. And I said, Dad... And I was crying. I said, today, and if he's listening, I know, Dad, you remember this. Today, I gave my life to Jesus. And I said, Dad, it's like God told me. And I don't know if I heard it audibly or what, folks. I don't know. But I told this, and I said, Dad, it's like God told me. I have answered your father's prayers. And dad said, son, we have been getting together with other parents and we have been repenting for the sins that we had passed on to our own children. You see, my aunt had shared with my dad when she had really had hit her in the commandments where it says, I'll pass the sins of the father onto the son into the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
and my grandfather had done the same thing and he left my father when he was young. My father did the same thing he did and left me when I was young. And I did the same thing my father did in three generations. And then that day, God broke the curse on our family. The generational curse was stopped that day. I remember how I couldn't believe that morning I left strung out and outside of a church I came home born again. Well, about 10, maybe seven, maybe, maybe uh, 10 years ago, roughly, not even that. I bet it was eight years ago, probably. A friend of mine I know that lives down in Ford, Virginia, wanted me to go preach at his mother's church down in Martinsville, Virginia, where they had the races at. So I went down there to that church to preach, and I took my wife. And I preach on all types of things, but that day I felt led that I should share my story of conversion. And I shared that, I shared in that story how I went to the Christian school, and I thought it was going to straighten me out and ended up being worse. And I was drinking beer at night across the street in this little house, and I was smoking dope and all these things. And as I was sitting there, my wife was there up front listening. And she was crying. I was crying because this stuff, my wife's been there with my testimony before. This stuff's real. And even though it's been since 1999 and my wife has forgiven me, it still hurts. It's still painful. I put my wife through a lot. And we were both in tears as I had to look my wife down sharing this. And I looked in the back of the audience and this lady was there and she was crying uncontrollably. And I was thinking to myself, man, she must have a son that's going through something, maybe a spouse. I'm not sure exactly what was going on, but man, she was crying so hard. And and uh, I remember afterwards we got up and I walked to the you know back of the church. And I was talking to people and and finally, this lady's husband came out and she said, he said, just wait here a minute. She'll be out. She needs to share something with you. Now, this Martinsville is about three and a half, four, three and a half hours, four hours where, from where I live. Uh, three and a half, I think. And um, so I was down there, you know, way far away. And um, she comes up to me and she says, I want you to read this letter. And then I want you to share it with your wife. Now, remember, my family always called me Frankie. So my buddy Brian's mom always called me Frankie. So she says, dear Frankie, I was there at that school. I was talking about the Christian school when you were. I know exactly which house. Now I'm, read, I'm reading this right from the in front of my Bible right now. I know exactly which house you went to because I was across the street in the girl's dorm watching that house. I noticed every time the light in the upper room would change color. I remember seeing you and some of the other boys going to that house. I would pray every time I saw you go over there. You see, I knew the people who rented that house. My aunt lived next door through the years. I have been back to the school many times I would remember what happened and pray for you every time I looked at that house. 
today I saw those prayers had been answered. 20 some years after that event took place, God sent me to that woman's church through a string of random connections to show her that her prayers for somebody who didn't even know she existed, I didn't even know her, were answered. That's the supernatural God that we serve. That's the one that I've been talking to you about from the remnant call for years. That's why I do this because the God that saved me, I believe, is doing the same thing with others. And so here we are, we're in such dark hours, we're in such dark times, we're in such a mess of a world, and God is calling his children home. Not, not all the ones that got it perfect, not the ones that got their acts all together. I'm talking about filthy mess-ups who have done everything wrong in their life, but God, they're feeling this calling, and God is inviting them. If they will come home, he will sup and be with them. I'm extending this invitation to you tonight. If your heavenly father is calling you, if you think maybe you've gone too far, and I told you I didn't share any of the bad stuff I did really, because it's disgusting. The things my friends and I did are, un, they're, they're, they're so shameful. I don't want to ever breathe them again. I don't want to say them ever off my lips. I didn't have anything. I didn't have a dime in my pocket worth of goodness. I didn't know how to even get saved. But the day I cried out to Jesus, my God came running. I don't care if you've been eaten with the pigs. If you can remember the goodness of your heavenly father. The Bible says that he was waiting, looking. And when he saw that prodigal son come home, he took off running. Your father in heaven will come running for you. Folks, our time is short. There's a million end time programs. I'm trying to tell you right now, God can change your life and he can turn you into a weapon, a powerful weapon for his kingdom to be used in a mighty way in this last hour to save every last soul that wants to come to Jesus. But he needs people who are willing, not asking for special qualifications. He's asking for a broken heart and a contrite spirit. God loves taking the rejects of this world, transforming them, and confounding the wisdom of the wise because they see us as unredeemable and God sees us as his children. I beg you and I plead you with you, please, please turn your heart to Jesus. Turn to our Heavenly Father and cry out to Him and watch the power of His salvation. This is Brother Frank on the Remnant Call saying to everybody, good night and shalom. Oh, 
Lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.